Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, A Fiancé Searches in Vain. As we begin the year 2022, it's kind of appropriate that today's episode of No Home for Heroes is taken from case number 0222 in the files of the Chief Rick Zone and Family Charitable Foundation. So we begin today's episode with a question. Do you remember your first love? Were you 14 or 15 or maybe a little older or hey, maybe even a little younger? Despite what happened later in life, will you always remember that first love? Well, today's episode is about one such love by two teenagers who grew up on two different continents, interrupted by a world war and never to be fulfilled. I'm your host, Rick Stone, bringing you another great and true story from our vault of history's military mysteries. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the Foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. We invite you to listen to all of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast or streaming platform you prefer. We dedicate today's episode to all our loyal listeners in New Zealand who keep abreast of our Foundation activities and who showed such kindness during World War II to many of the exact same MIAs we are currently seeking to find. Here's the story of just one wartime New Zealand romance that led to a lifetime search for answers and continues to this very day. On 30 January 2015, the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command, or JPAC, was officially deactivated by the Department of Defense and a supposedly new agency, the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency, or DPA, was created uh, using most of the same old management personnel from JPAC. The Department of Defense, really great ideas and their efforts at reform, followed a series of embarrassing scandals and damning revelations in media reports and testimony before Congress concerning mismanagement and failures in the effort to identify our missing war dead. So before we begin today's episode, let's recap what happened last year in 2021. DPAA, DPA, has shifted its focus from identifications to, quote, accounting for, end quote, recovered remains that have been identified by others. The vast majority of the current identifications of MIAs are completed by the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory using DNA comparisons. The DNA comparisons, as we've spoken of many times on these episodes, was referred to by JPAC when I worked there as voodoo science. But, and there's always a but in history's military mysteries, according to DPA, they have obtained family reference samples, which is DNA, from only 6% of the families of MIAs from World War II. DPAA has posted on its website that it, quote, accounted for, end quote, 
120 MIAs from World War II and 17 other MIAs from all of our other past wars during the period 1 January through 31 December 2021. The vast majority of these 137 unaccounted, or correction, 137 accounted for cases claimed by DPAA in 2021 were actually made by the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory in Dover, Delaware, from remains previously buried as unknowns in the Punchbowl Cemetery and as unknowns from one case, that of the USS Oklahoma. By the way, if you believe DPAA's claim that the small number in 2021, 137, is because of the COVID-19 pandemic, well, DPAA accounted for only 116 World War II MIAs in 2019, long before the world even heard of the coronavirus. Guess what? At this current rate of accounting for, it's estimated that it will take DPAA almost 600 years to account for all of our World War II MIAs. I'm thinking maybe 600 years from now, I probably won't be around to see it happen. As a U.S. government agency with a budget of over $154 million in 2021, the cost is pretty easy to estimate that DPAA charged about $1,124,087 for each MIA it identified in 2021. The backlog of recovered sets of remains awaiting identification at the DPAA laboratory in Hawaii still exceeds over 1,100 American servicemen and American servicewomen who are stored in cardboard boxes in a storage room in Honolulu. The average time for identification after remains are received in the DPAA laboratory was reported by an internal report to be 11 years. As of December 31, 2021, DPAA reported that there are still 71,977 missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen just from World War II. That's almost 72,000 American families who continue to search for information about their lost heroes But today's story sheds a different light on individuals who also search for lost American heroes, individuals who crossed paths with these Americans, even though they were citizens of another country. Harry Cronkite stated he was born in State Line, Illinois. At the time of the 1940 census, Harry had completed eight years of school and was living as a lodger in the home of James and Lucy Cole in Carroll, Illinois. Harry enlisted in the United States Marine Corps on 26 January 1942 in Danville, Illinois. He was assigned to the rank of private. At the time of his enlistment, he noted his residence in Seidel, Illinois, and Private Cronkite Cronkite listed his legal guardian, Henry Moore of Olivet, Illinois, as his next of kin. Private Cronkite completed his basic training with the 13th Recruit Battalion in San Diego, California. And on March 11, 1942, he was assigned to Company A, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines. Wasting very little time, in April 1942, Private Cronkite and his company were transported to the South Pacific aboard the USS President Hayes, 
He and his company participated in the Battle of Guadalcanal, where Private Cronkite was shot in the left foot on 10 November 1942. After being wounded, Private Cronkite was evacuated by, from Guadalcanal by airplane on 12 November 1942 and flown to the United States Naval Hospital at Ifede, New Hebrides. It is known that Private Cronkite remained in the hospital at Ifede through 31 January 1943 and perhaps longer. On 17 February 1943, Private Cronkite was promoted to Private First Class and rejoined his unit who had already been shipped to New Zealand. From 14 July through 17 July, Private Cronkite was back in the hospital with an unknown or at least unrecorded illness or injury. Well, on 31 July 1943, in a large ceremony, Private Cronkite was awarded the Purple Heart Medal for the wound he received for inaction in, on Guadalcanal. As was the custom during the Marines' time in New Zealand, they were given generous liberty to rest and recreate and were often welcomed into the private homes of New Zealanders whose own sons were assigned abroad with the British Army, primarily in combat against the Germans and Italians in North Africa. It was the Brommel home in Wellington, New Zealand, that Harry was treated like another one of three sons in the Brommel family. But there was also one daughter, Marcel. Even though Marcel was only 15 years old, a bond developed between Harry and the younger teenager from New Zealand. It wasn't long before they considered themselves engaged, despite Marcel's young age. Harry, who was also a teenager who had just turned 19, promised to wait for Marcel to grow up eh, just a little bit more. And Marcel promised to wait for Harry to come back from the war. On 1 November 1943, PFC Cronkite and his company embarked aboard the USS Harry Lee at Wellington, New Zealand for transport to Tarawa. At Tarawa, PFC Cronkite's company approached Red Beach 2 at about 10.30 in the morning on the first day of the invasion, 20 November 1943. Due to the topography of their designated landing area, heavy fire was directed against them by Japanese defenders on both Red Beach 2 and to their right on Red Beach 1. Soon, four of the company's six officers were either wounded or killed. Those members of Private Cronkite's company who did safely reach the shore quickly took refuge behind a coconut log seawall, and they awaited reinforcements from B and C companies before they began attacking inland against strong opposition by the Japanese defenders. Orders were given to Private Cronkite's company to begin attacking inland, but most of the men were hesitant to move from behind the protection of the seawall. A Company's First Sergeant, Wilbur Burgess, began berating members of his unit to attack. And you've heard us mention this famous... Uh, well, what would you call it? Story? No, not a story. This famous legacy of the Marines. Sergeant Burgess yelled to his fellow Marines, Come on, what's the matter? You want to live forever? Well, finally, individually and in pairs, the members of Private Cronkite's company began moving over the seawall and directly into Japanese fire. Soon they had made significant advances across the flat Japanese airfield 
and into a number of log revetments that were built to hold Japanese aircraft on the other side of the southern taxiway. Between 40 and 60 members of PFC Cronkite's company occupied scattered positions between the center of the triangle formed by the main airfield and the northwest aircraft taxiway. Other members of PFC Cronkite's company continued to filter onto Red Beach 2 during the evening and night as the survivors spent the restless darkness awaiting a Japanese counterattack that never materialized. By noon on the next day, 21 November, all of the surviving members of the 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, had landed on Red Beach 2. And about, well, 1 o'clock in the afternoon on 21 November, the 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, continued their drive across the island, dodging from shell hole to shell hole across open ground on the runway and taking up positions in Japanese anti-tank ditches just shy of the other side of the island on Black Beach 2. During these attacks, casualties were heavy to PFC Cronkite's company. Approximately 12 survivors of the attack across the airfield toward the southern shore leaped into a five-foot-deep shell hole about a dozen yards from the other side of the island on Black Beach 2. One Marine after another attempted to take a peek over the shell hole rim to see if there had been any progress by their company mates to reach their position. Four Marines were shot in the head in this attempt. By about 4 o'clock in the afternoon on 21 November, all that remained in these forward positions were about 200 Marines from a wide mixture of 1st Battalion companies, including two organized gun platoons from D Company. B Company, that's Bravo Company, repulsed a large force of Japanese who attempted to attack the eastern flank of the Marine line, and during that attack, many members of Bravo Company were wounded and killed. By dusk, the 1st Battalion units, including A Company, B Company, C Company, and D Company, all again dug into defensive foxholes in preparation for more nighttime Japanese counterattacks. Well, they started kind of counting noses and checking up on individuals and each other during that evening, and they noticed that PFC Cronkite was missing. He was originally listed on his United States Marine Corps casualty card as missing in action on 21 November 1943. This document in his records does not list a cause of death or a burial location, but the chaplain of the 1st Battalion of 2nd Marines noted in his logbook that PFC Cronkite was, quote, last seen 21 November 43 on Beach Red 2 under heavy enemy fire, end quote. The official circumstances of PFC Cronkite's death are unknown. Based on the chaplain's logbook and the notation that he was last seen on Red Beach 2 on the second day after the company had landed the day before, well, it doesn't take a genius to note that the preponderance of the evidence indicates that he reached the beach alive and was not killed out in the water before landing on Tarawa. Based on all the available evidence, including biometric profiling and subsequent foundation research, and even that I had done at JPAC, on Private Cronkite's case, we believe that there were many 
unknowns buried on Tarawa and recovered from Tarawa that met the profile of PFC Harry Cronkite. When I first received this case as a member of the Department of Defense in 2011, I soon realized that, you know, looking at the records, I wasn't the only one who was searching for Harry. In fact, there was a notation in, in PFC Cronkite's file that a woman in New Zealand named Marcel Brommel Hudbin wrote the Marine Corps in 1998 asking for PFC Cronkite's service record. And in that request, she said that she was his fiance when he was officially recorded as killed in action. Yep, you're right. That would be the same young 15-year-old from the Brommel family in New Zealand who promised to wait for Harry to come back from the war. After the war, when Marcel learned that Harry had been declared dead and was not coming home to either New Zealand or Illinois, she married a former New Zealand sailor, and they raised nine children. Despite Marcel's obviously busy married life, she continued to search in vain for information on Private First Class Harry Cronkite. Even in 2003, at the age of 75, Marcel Brommel Hubbin was still actively searching the internet for information about Harry. Sadly, Marcel died in 2009 at age 81, still searching in vain for her first love, PFC Harry Cronkite. Today, we are continuing Marcel's search for Private First Class Cronkite, and we've been in contact with his stateside family as well, and added them to the list of people who remember this lost American hero. As of today, the beginning of 2022, Private First Class Harry Cronkite remains missing in action. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. No Home for Heroes is featured on just about any podcast site across the world, including New Zealand. We greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. We again thank you for your support of our mission to provide information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. Every assistance counts, and you do make a difference. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas, I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them.